Well, if you've got a copy of God's Word there, I would invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. So as I said, what we have before us in verses 20 through 36 is a section that lies right at the heart of the Gospel of John and a section that takes us right to the heart of the message of Christianity. And so we're going to look at these verses with three headings. First of all, the request, verses 20 to 22. Secondly, the response, verses 23 through 26. And then finally, we'll we'll parse out the reality of Jesus' death for him and then for us. So first of all, the request. Look at verses 20 to 21 with me. Now Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, up until this point in John's Gospel, we've got really used to Jesus almost exclusively from John 4 onwards, John 5 onwards, interacting with the Jews. The last time he had a major interaction was with the Samaritan women at the well. But from there on in, Jesus has been mainly interacting with the Jews. And then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we read about these non-Jews, these Greeks, who'd come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Which suggests to us that these Greeks were proselytes. They were God-fearers. They were Greeks who had turned to the God of Judaism, Yahweh. What is noteworthy is they come with a request. And the request is they want to see Jesus. Now many people speculate, why did they see Jesus? What's really interesting is in the passage immediately before this one, if you, you just look down, it's the triumphal entry. And in verse 19, we, we read this. You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Jesus. And we know that immediately after the triumphal entry in Mark's account and in Luke's account, Jesus cleansed the temple for the second time. And do you remember what Jesus stood up and said when he cleansed the temple? He quoted from Isaiah and Jeremiah and he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And if the Greeks had been there and they'd heard Jesus say that, it's no wonder that they wanted to see Jesus. Here was a religious teacher who wanted non-Jews to come to the temple, especially the court of Gentiles, and be able to worship. And what a glorious request they come with. Sir, they say to Philip, we wish to see Jesus. What makes this so glorious is we're so used to the Jews demanding from Jesus a sign. Come on, give us a sign. Show us some evidence that you are who you say you are. And even when he does show them signs, they don't believe it. No, they reject him. They try and seize him. They want to stone him. But here come these non-Jews and their desire is, we want to see Jesus. 
In many ways, that ought to be our prayer this morning. That ought to be what shapes our hearts and informs our minds. We want, with the eyes of faith, as we study this passage to see Jesus, we want, as we come and celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, to see Jesus. In, in Scotland, in many a pulpit that I've preached in, you, you, you ascend the steps up, you arrive in the pulpit, you drop down your notes, and written often at the top of the pulpit will be, Sir. We want to see Jesus. A helpful reminder for every preacher. We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. Now, in verse 22, we read that Philip, who got this request, he turns immediately to Andrew. And we may ask, why? Well, remember at the start of John's Gospel, who's the one who's always bringing people to meet Jesus? Andrew. He brought his brother. He brought many others to meet Jesus. So for whatever reason, Philip turns to Andrew and says, listen, these Greeks, they want to see Jesus. And so together they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, there's these Greeks that are up for the festival and they want to see you. And we're so used to, to, in John's gospel, Jesus making time for blind beggars, for lame people, for adulterers, for a Samaritan woman. And so what we would expect to read next is that Jesus said, wonderful, bring them here. But instead, that's not how he responds. Verse 23, he responds with these words. The hour has come. It's not what we're expecting. It's certainly not what Andrew and Philip were expecting to hear. You can imagine them. They look in their faces. What? Did he hear us? We just made a request. There's Greeks that want to see him. And he's saying, the hour has come. Some of you will know that it's a great movie, a novel, is that in the storyline there are two strands running side by side. So think of Titanic. There's this story of romance in the film. <laughs> and then think as well, there's a story of tragedy. And throughout John's gospel, there's been this theme running through it where Jesus says his hour is going to come. At the wedding in Cana, he says, my hour has not yet come. When Judas sees him, he escapes him, and John tells us it was because his hour had not yet come. And so we're filled with this long, in the sense of anticipation, what is the hour of Jesus? But all the while, we're also reading the story of tragedy. There are these Jews, and they want to kill him. And now these two storylines, they meet. This is the moment that John's gospel has been building up to. Jesus' hour has come, and it's got something to do with the Jews who want to kill him. In fact, it's got everything to do with his death. So we've looked at the request of these Greeks. Now let's look at the response of Jesus. You see, the request of the Greeks is like an exploding fuse in the mind of Jesus. And so he says, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. What does it mean here that Jesus should be glorified? Like theologically, we all know that he is infinitely glorious. So how can he be glorified? Well, what it means is that he will be shown to be more glorious. Not more glorious than he already is, but to all people, they will see his glory. 
And where is his glory going to be revealed? Well, according to Jesus and what he says next, in his death, the glory of Christ is shown, demonstrated, made known in his death. Now, uh, there's a preacher here this morning, Reverend David Randall. He was the preacher who uh, inducted me into this charge. And he walked into this building and he said, as every preacher would say, Andy, your building has got the perfect illustration. I said, what do you mean? He said, look at the scaffolding. This place is a work in progress, like all of God's people are, like the churches. Now, that's a preacher's mind. I've been saving one illustration, but I'm going to use it today. See the side of that choir box pew? It says the glorious dead, right? Now, it relates to the fact that there's a memorial there. But I was sitting there one Sunday, and I was looking, and I was thinking, that's a choir box. And often in choir boxes, you get mature people, well-on people. It's unfortunate that 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 says on the side of it, the glorious dead. (laughs) But I don't want you to ever forget those words. Because glory is seen in death in the purposes of God. Now, Jesus is the master illustrator. I don't know if he picked up a grain of wheat at this point. This is what he says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus explains how he is going to be glorified and he uses the most vivid illustration he possibly can. He says, look, if there's a seed, right? It needs to be sown into the ground. It needs to die in order that there will be life and a harvest. In essence, he's saying, that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be sown into the ground. I am going to die and then I'm going to come back to life and we are going to reap a harvest. Now, on this side of the cross, that makes perfect sense to us. The death of Jesus is where he's shown to be glorious. But if you were a first century listener, there is no way that this in any way sounded glorious. In fact, down in verse 32, Jesus tells them how he will die. He says he's going to be lifted up from the earth. He literally says, I'm going to die by means of crucifixion. And every single person in the first century knew that the most shameful way to die was by crucifixion. No Roman citizen could be put to death by means of crucifixion. It was only for those who were not Romans, those who were the worst of the worst, slaves, servants. And Jesus says he is going to be shown glorious in his death by crucifixion. He'll be hung naked on a cross. Nails thrust through his wrists and feet. And yet, in the economy of God, this will show him to be glorious. One of my favorite preachers, Eric Alexander, says this, glory and suffering are inextricably linked together in the purposes of God. The only way for Jesus to be crowned with glory is first for him to go through the suffering, the death of the cross. 
from the cross, it is his throne where he is shown to be the glorious king. To the glory of God and for the redemption of sinners. Now, I don't know if Jesus had a, a seed in his hand, as I said. But little did the people know that standing in front of him, they were the harvest he was speaking about. He was to reap a huge harvest, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles. You see, Jesus came into the world and his mission was to save people from all nations. Now, in his sermon, Jesus doesn't stop there, but he continues. And every great sermon has an illustration. And every great sermon has really pointed application. You know, application that punctures the soul. Well, Jesus says, do you understand that his death and his resurrection has application for you and me, for all who will follow him? Jesus teaches us that we too are to die to ourselves in order that we might bear fruit in his kingdom. Now let me just be really clear here. What Jesus is not saying is that we are saved through dying. He alone had to die for our sins as our substitute. It's only through believing in him as the one who died in our place and was raised on the third day that we are saved. But Jesus says, for all who do believe in him and who do come to salvation in him, here's the application. You've got to deny self, take up cross, and follow him. Now, the way Jesus says this is it's pretty hard-hitting. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Preachers have a, a different way of speaking. We, we use expressions, we use sayings. Some of them in our congregation like this are often lost, so I'll use Scottish sayings, and most of you have never heard of it. You think, what in the world is he talking about? And we could read what Jesus is saying here and think, what in the world is he talking about? He says we have to hate life. We have to hate his life in this world and those who hate their life will keep it and have eternal life. And he says, those who love their lives, they'll lose it. Now in the first century, that, that was a way of speaking. Every Jew in Palestine understood this way of speaking. They loved to employ the device of exaggerated language. So in another instance, Jesus says, whoever does not hate his father and mother is not worthy of me. Now did Jesus mean there that we should cuss, curse our parents, think evil thoughts of our parents, turn our backs on our parents? Of course he didn't. But what he did mean was our love for Jesus should look like hate in comparison for our parents. Our preference for Jesus should be so much greater than for our families. And what he's saying here is the same point. Your Life has got to look like hatred towards this life. That is living for self and living for this world. If you're going to live for self, if you're going to live for this world, you're going to lose your life. And that's Jesus' euphemistic way of saying, you are going to go to hell. 
But the flip side of that is if you hate this life, meaning if you're willing to die to yourself and to the things of this world, and you're willing to live for him, to live for his glory, to live for others, you'll keep it for eternal life. Now this is hard-hitting application because if we examine our lives, who is it we love more? Self or Jesus? There's a deep-seated tendency in our human nature, even as redeemed sinners, to still love self more than to love Christ. To put our interests before his interests. And one of the challenges for us is we live in a culture. It's the air we breathe. Look after number one. Put self first. Do whatever you want. Stop worrying about others. Focus on yourself. Whatever you desire, go after it. But here Jesus says, no, the Christian who's come to believe in him, to trust in his death and resurrection, the Christian is someone who dies to self, who takes up cross, and who follows Jesus. One of my heroes from church history is a man by the name of Jim Elliot. I've shared his story before. He was a missionary to the Oka people in Ecuador. He famously wrote in his journal when he was a young man, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And if you know the story of Jim Elliot, he went as a missionary to the Oka people in the Amazon. And as he was trying to make contact with them, as they were dropping gifts from a plane, they then landed the plane, and the people he was trying for the gospel came and they killed him. He literally lost that which he could not keep to gain that which he could not lose eternal life and he's in glory and the most profound thing about his story is in many ways it's a perfect picture of the seed illustration because one of the men who killed him came to christ and became like an adopted father to his own son he gave that which he could not keep to gain that which he could not lose now, you might be sitting here and saying, this is, this is far too high a calling. This is, this, is, this is the master preacher we're listening to. This is his final address. He's got brilliant illustration. He's got pointed application. But you know, if you're going to be a brilliant preacher, the, the, the thing that you need to learn from Jesus is, is that he, he gives motivation. And he says, you really want to get what I'm saying. Well, look at what he says in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. One of the questions that I hear people often asking my three-year-old son is, what do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) He's three. He says, I want to be a preacher. He says, I want to be a farman. He says, I want to be a bin man. Like the, the law, like he's got an adventurous mind. He sees people doing jobs. He thinks, I want to be like them. I mean, if you grew up and you thought to yourself, when I grew up, I want to be a servant. Is that what you were dreaming of when you were a kid? I bet you were dreaming like me. You want to be a king or a queen, a prince or a princess. You want to be a boss. You want to make a name for yourself. You want to have a good life. 
those who believe in Jesus, they realize that the calling to be a servant is the most glorious calling of all. And the incredible motivation that Jesus gives is, my father will honor the one who serves me. You see, in the, in the kingdom of God, you know where greatness and glory is? In service. When you live for his glory, when you serve others, the Father gives glory to that. And that's because we reflect his Son. Here's the incredible thing about what Jesus says here. Service for his glory leads to honor. Your death to self will lead to life. But let Jesus be really clear and frank. If you live for self, if you live for your own glory and honor, Jesus' words, you will lose your life. Now, you could easily mishear me and think then, Andy, is is your point of application in all of this, when you were trying to illustrate it with Jim Elliot, that we should all become missionaries and go lose, lose our life for the sake of the kingdom and see much gospel gain? Well, here's the honest truth. Most of us won't lose our lives. Most of us won't be martyred for our faith. But even though I say that, if I was preaching in a different country, maybe like Niger, the application would be true. And there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who lose their life. But but maybe I can be really pointed to us as those who are living in the wealthy West. You know, one of the hardest things one of the most costly things is to die to our own desires for the sake of Jesus. To deny self is costly, is difficult. To take up cross, that is to identify with Jesus today in this culture, in this moment, is hard. But Jesus says, listen, you do that. You, you live your life with my glory in view, don't worry. My Father will honor you. It just depends who are you living for. The opinion and the approval of this world are for the glory of the Father. So we've looked at the request of the Greeks. We've looked at the response of Jesus. We've looked at his illustration, his application. We've looked at the motivation. But now in the last few verses, Jesus now spells out the reality of his death. And it's the reality of his death for him. First, sir, we want to see Jesus. Well, if you want to see Jesus, Jesus now lets us in and we get an insight to what's going on in his mind and soul. Verse 27, we read, "My Now is my soul troubled. I'm saying that that walking in the way of Christ is tough, is difficult. Christ going to the cross was, was agonizing. It was deeply troubling for Jesus. In fact, he, he, he wonders aloud, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And if you're listening, you might say, this feels really familiar. This, this reminds me of what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he's not in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's somewhere with the disciples where the Greeks are. And it's because going through, going on in the mind of Jesus, a lot of the time in preparation for the cross was the reality that was in front of him. 
But notice what Jesus then prays. But for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Can I I give you one of the best bits of advice I've ever received? In any and in every circumstance we find ourselves in as Christians, we should always ask ourselves this question. Will what, I, uh, will what I'm doing or what I'm going to do, will it glorify the Father? That's, that's the question. For nearly any and every circumstance you find yourself in, does this glorify Father? And again, this, this, this statement of Jesus, it sounds so familiar to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done, but yours. In fact, we've prayed it this morning. In the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And just to let you know what you prayed this morning, you prayed, Father, not my will, not my desires, your will for your glory. Now, what what, what is incredible is that at this moment, a voice from heaven spoke. And this is what the voice said, verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said and angels had spoken to him. If you know your Old Testament, if you know Exodus chapter 19, you'll know at the Mount Sinai when God spoke to Moses on the mountain, the people heard claps of thunder, and in the... uh, Jewish tradition, everybody wondered, was it an angel of the Lord that gave the law to Moses at Sinai? Read about it in Galatians. And all of this is pointing us to the fact of Christ's identity. The one who is standing there is God in the flesh. And that's why Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. He's saying, listen, you want witness? You want to see me? See me for who I am. I am. I am. Yahweh. Now, now, now then Jesus lets us right in to the reality of his death, and we're going to finish with this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I said, this is the heart of John's gospel. And here Jesus' sermon takes us to the heart of what he came to do. Jesus came on the cross to take in himself the judgment of God for his people. Jesus came to cast out the evil one. If you and I had been alive in the first century and we'd walked by the cross and we saw Jesus hanging on the middle cross, we would have wondered to ourselves, really was he who he said he was? It looks like the devil's won and the devil's defeated him. But the cross, his death, is God's most glorious way of saying, the head of the serpent is crushed. The devil is defeated. He is the victorious one. Because this was the plan and the purpose of God from the beginning. And just so you know, Jesus now answers the request. He now answers the request of the Greek. Verse 32. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
and that all people there means Jew and Gentile. I will draw all the nations to myself. And the glory of the cross is this. Jesus saves. Jesus saves people from all backgrounds. Jesus saves those who want to see him. Jesus saves to the uttermost. He takes our sin. He pays for it in full. He gives us his righteousness. Jesus saves. The crowd who are listening on, they understand he's talking about his death, but maybe you have these moments when you're sitting listening to a preacher. You hear the message, and there's a little bit in your brain that says, I don't know if I agree with that. Because I know there's something else in Scripture that contradicts what he's saying. That's what's going on in their minds. They're hearing Jesus saying he's going to be lifted up, and they think to themselves, I know that it's written in the Old Testament law, meaning the Old Testament, that the Son of Man, the Messiah, he'll live forever. So how can he say that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, meaning the Son of Man is going to die? Like Isaiah says, he's going to have a kingdom and it's going to reign forever. It says that in 2 Samuel 7. So how can Jesus say he's the Son of Man and he's telling us he's going to die? Here's the problem. They'd forgotten Isaiah 53. That the suffering servant of the Lord would die. He would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He would carry and bear the griefs and sorrows of his people. He'd be smitten by God, afflicted, pierced for their transgressions, crushed for their iniquities. Upon him the chastisement to bring about their peace. By his wounds they would be healed. The Lord would lay on him the iniquity of all of his people. Like a lamb he'd be led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shearers he would be silent. He would not open his mouth. They missed the prophecy that said that the same Messiah who lived forever will die, but will die for the sins of his people, and he'll conquer the grave so that his people will live with him forever in his resurrection. And I love the way Jesus finishes this sermon. Every sermon finishes with a climax. He climaxes it like this. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Do you know what he says? The daylight hours are here right now, but soon it will be nighttime. Soon you won't have this opportunity. And so verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. It's a simple fact of life that the opportunity to believe in Jesus will not always be there. It is not only that we have no guarantee that we will live to see tomorrow, but here's the other reality. We have no guarantee that we will ever have a true concern for our soul that will last beyond today. And Jesus says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Today is the appointed day of salvation. Seize the opportunity. And if you come and believe in him, come, die with him, die to self, follow him, be among the glorious dead with Christ. Let's pray.
Our Father God, we thank you for your glorious kingdom purposes. We thank you that your thoughts are not our thoughts, your ways are not our ways. We thank you that in your purposes, suffering and glory go together. We thank you for the glory that we see in the suffering of our Savior Jesus. We thank you for the glory that is seen in his resurrection, that he is the one who is lifted up high and exalted. He is the one who ascends to your right hand and reigns from on high even this morning. We thank you for his words, and we pray that as we have heard the words of Christ this morning, that we wouldn't just be hearers, that we'd be doers. Lord, for those who have never believed, would they come to believe? And for those of us who do believe, would we show that we believe in the way that we respond by dying to self and living for Christ? And we pray this in his glorious name. Amen.